been working through uh, the Gospel of Luke for almost a year and a half, uh, and we're getting close to the end of the Gospel. Uh, we're, we're skipping a text in the order of Luke 19, uh, because we've looked at that text before. So uh, the next text where we left off from last week would be the triumphal entry passage from Luke 19. But a year ago at Easter time, I preached through uh, the triumphal entry passage from Luke 19. So if you uh, weren't here that Sunday or want to just kind of follow up with that, you can find that online uh, and kind of listen to that triumphal entry passage. But since we've looked at that text, Text specifically, uh, and also because Chris Williams preached through the triumphal entry passage from Matthew just a couple of weeks ago, we're going to continue on uh, in the Gospel of Luke. After Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he spent much of the following days teaching in the temple. And the events of this passage uh, would just be a few days from his crucifixion. And so at the temple, he has multiple interactions. And in those interactions, we see that he is correcting practices and false beliefs. He's confronting the religious leaders for their rejection. In all of those, he was teaching the good news. And so salvation is at hand, right? The Savior has come. Our Savior has come into the city Uh, And he was about to die for the sins of the world. So our sermon is titled, The Savior Who Corrects and Confronts. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke 19. I'm going to read Luke 19, starting in verse 45, and we're going to go through uh, Luke 20, verse 19. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, It is written that my house will be a house of prayer But you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. But they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came And said to him, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too. 
treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they disgusted among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, that must never happen. But he looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour, because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess it again as true as we do each week. Work in our hearts. Work in our minds, help us believe, and help us respond accordingly. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So thinking of uh, the text that points out multiple ways that Jesus, the Savior, is correcting and confronting, we're going to look at three different components of that in, in our sermon today. The first is this, Jesus corrects and confronts improper worship. Jesus corrects and confronts improper worship. So let's look back at verse 45 through 48 of Luke 19. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, it is written that my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. But they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. So what had become the practice of the day, uh, the temple is where sacrifices were made. And so the practice of the day, since there were often people that were traveling in from far distances, especially at this time of year, this is at the Passover. This is within, you know, just a few days of when they're going to take Passover, celebrate the Passover uh, celebration together as a nation. There are people who have traveled from great distances. And so the practice had become that people would bring in sacrifices that could be sold. And so the sacrifices uh, were taking up a portion of the temple court where people were selling these things. And it became clear that what was happening was they had turned it into a commercial business. Matthew's account of this same uh, incident talks about the money changers also. Uh, so Jesus in Luke, it says he threw out those who were selling the sacrifices. Uh, the Matthew account mentions the money changers. Because there was a temple tax that would be paid by the, the people when they came in, money changers also set up there. 
and exchanged currencies because there were people from all kinds of nations, Jews that at some point in time their families had been scattered and dispersed, were traveling from distant lands and coming in. And to be able to pay the temple tax in the shekel that was required, they would have to exchange their currency. And in all of that... What the practice had become was for there to be essentially a surcharge that was a benefit to Ananias, the high priest. Josephus, the historian, the Roman Jewish historian from the first century, referred to Ananias as the great procurer of money. He had completely commercialized uh, worship practices at the temple, and he was profiting off of it. He and his family were, were profiting from this. Jesus goes in and addresses this. He corrects it. He confronts them in the wickedness that is taking place. Now, not only is there the abuse of power and taking advantage of people by profiting off of them when they need to come and make a sacrifice or need to come and uh, pay the temple tax, but the other issue that's going to be clear is because of where this is happening in the temple. Where this is happening in the temple was known as the court of the Gentiles, It was the one place of the temple that people from all nations were allowed to gather. Portions of the temple were just for the people of Israel. But the court of the Gentiles was anyone from any nation who wanted to draw close to God, they could come there. They could come and pray. They could come and worship. And yet now, under Ananias' leadership... And these wicked practices that are taking place, the Gentiles are pushed out. They, they needed the space to be able to bring in the sacrifices. They needed the space to set up the, uh, the money changers tables. And so the Gentiles could not come and worship as God had intended them to. And so the, the passage He actually quotes from two prophets, Jesus does. Uh, He quotes from Isaiah and he quotes from Jeremiah. But the passage from Isaiah 56 is a passage that is about all nations being able to come to God's house and worship him. And so in Isaiah 56 and verse 7, we see this. This is a prophecy from the from Isaiah uh, given by God. I will bring them to my holy mountain and let them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The. I will bring them to my holy mountain. The them that is being referenced there are the Gentile nations. He's not talking about the Israelites. God, through the prophet, is saying there's going to be a day when all nations will come and worship and praise and pray to me. It will be a house of prayer for all nations, not just one. So the people that God was planning to bring in are being held out because of the improper worship practices. 
because of this desire and greed to gain more by Ananias. And so in verse 47 to 48, we see that Jesus, after throwing out the money changers, after flipping over their tables, after getting rid of all of the people that were selling in the court of the Gentiles, Jesus continues each day preaching in the temple. And there's different responses. You've got those of the religious leaders. They're outraged. It says they, they're looking for a way to get their hands on him. They're looking for a way to kill him because he has confronted them. He has corrected them, the improper worship that was taking place. The problem that they have is they can't get their hands on him at the time because the other response is the response of the crowd. They're captivated by him. They are hanging on every word that Jesus has to say. And so the religious leaders are trapped. They can't do what they want to do. They want to get rid of this man who is confronting the the wickedness that is built up in their hearts and in their lives. Honoring God with appropriate worship was of utmost importance. And it still is for us today. Allowing for outsiders to have a space to come in and draw close to God, to worship God, to find the grace of God is of utmost importance. Jesus confronted these things in the temple while he was there. And in reality, Jesus still has to confront things. He still has to confront improper worship. I saw a meme recently being passed around for the last maybe month or so uh, that said, if Paul were alive today, the American church would certainly be getting a letter. And I laughed, but it was one of those laughs of like, oh yeah, uh, we probably would. Uh, We would be getting a letter from Paul of, hey, We've got to talk about some things. I've heard about this. And as, I, as that came to mind this week, I was thinking about what Jesus did in this uh, scene in Luke. Of him going in and seeing the improper worship and him flipping tables and him running out the wickedness that had started to take place. And it made me think, what would Jesus have to correct about our improper worship Today, And that doesn't necessarily just have to be in the church, because as sinners, we also have practices of improper worship just in our own hearts, right? Disordered worship where we put things in the place of God. And Jesus is a savior who comes in and lovingly corrects and lovingly confronts those areas of improper worship. So as far as the American church, would would Jesus need to come in and confront the entertainment focus? In some, he certainly would. Uh, Would it be uh, that he had to confront the uh, man-made traditions that people have put in place and, and decided this is the only thing that is right and good, but it's not scriptural? 
and some he certainly would, would it be that we've turned worship into all about us instead of who it's supposed to be about, which is God? He certainly could. Our Savior came to correct those things and to turn our hearts back to God and out towards others. The second thing we see in this text from Luke is this. Jesus corrects and confronts those who reject his authority. Jesus corrects and confronts those who reject his authority. Now in Luke 20, I'm going to read the first eight verses again. One day, as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priest and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I will ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So he's teaching in the temple. This is likely maybe on Tuesday possibly on Wednesday of the week that he's going to be crucified, just a couple of days away from his crucifixion. And while he's teaching, as the people continue to be captivated by his message of grace, his good news, the religious leaders come and ask about his authority. The question of Jesus' authority has come up multiple times. Uh, they've asked questions of wondering, how does this man speak about doing things that only God can do? He doesn't, in their minds, he doesn't have the authority to say that. And over and over throughout his ministry, Jesus has taught with authority. That's what captivated people, right? We saw that early on in Luke, that the crowds were captivated because he didn't teach like the scribes of their day. He taught as someone who had real authority. And then we saw that he demonstrated his authority over and over and over again throughout this gospel. We've seen it. He had the authority to control nature. Storms raging. Seas raging. And he has the authority to tell the storm to stop. He can control Nature with a word. He had authority. He controlled demons. The work of Satan controlling lives. And Jesus stepped in and showed he's the one with authority. He controlled life itself. Where people who had died, he brought back to life with a word or a touch. He came with authority But they've rejected it. The religious leaders are asking him about his authority here because they don't believe he has it. They don't believe who he is. 
And so they ask him a question. Where do you get this from? Who gave you the right to do the things that you're doing? Who gave you the right to come in here and throw our tables over? Who gave you the right to run out the system that we have in place? Or to do any of the other things that you've done? Just tell us, where does your authority come from? Of course, what they're hoping is that he will say it's from God and they can say he's a blasphemer. Let's kill him. But Jesus turns and gives them a question and says, "Okay, well, first, let me ask you a question. I have a question for you. Where does John's baptism come from? John the Baptist, who he's talking about. Where did John's baptism come from? Was it from God? Was this from heaven? God ordained? Or was John's ministry a man-made ministry? Was what he was doing by calling people to repentance and baptizing them for the repentance of their sins, was that something he just made up on his own? Tell me where it came from. And they're trapped. They can't answer truthfully without either one, revealing their own hearts, or two, getting themselves in serious trouble with the rest of the crowd. And they know it. They have to turn and discuss it. You can see them huddled up, whispering, looking back across at Jesus like, what do we say? How are we going to get out of this? John the Baptist was the forerunner to the Messiah. The angel at, uh, you know, when the news came that John was coming, uh, the angel announced it uh, to Zechariah. You're going to have a son. I know you're way past the age of being able to have a son, but you're going to have a son and he's the one that's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And John's ministry, one of calling people to repentance of sins, to get ready for the Messiah, was one that was preparing them. John declared of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus' question is brilliant. Because, of course, every one of his questions are brilliant. But it's brilliant in this moment because they're confronted with a truth and they're given a chance to, to correct themselves. But if they say John's baptism was from God, they're in trouble because they've rejected John's baptism. They rejected John's message that the Messiah was coming and that they needed to be prepared for him. We see earlier, we looked at this uh, months ago, but back in Luke 7... In verse 29 and 30, uh, this is a text where uh, Jesus had been praising John the Baptist. And then we see this. And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees... And the experts in the law had not been baptized by him. They rejected the plan of God for themselves. The outcast and the sinners 
were overjoyed at this message of grace and this message of a Savior. And they were turning from their sins and turning back to God. But we're reminded again that the religious leaders, by and large, were rejecting that message. They had rejected Jesus' authority. They had rejected the message that there was one that was, to, that was coming that they needed to be prepared for. Because they had not been baptized by John, they are trapped. And so if they say this is God's work, then they're in trouble because they didn't do what they should have done. They didn't turn from their sins. They didn't accept the Savior that was coming. But there's another problem. If they say, no, John's ministry was a ministry from man, they know Everybody loved John. Everybody looked at John and said, that was a prophet from God. God sent him to prepare us for the Savior that's coming. And so if they say, no, it was man-made. Everything John was doing was from himself or from someone else, but it was not from God. They say, the people are going to stone us. We're going to die if we answer what we think which is John the Baptist wasn't doing the work of God. And so they take the easy way out and they just say, we don't know. We're not sure. Uh, and of course they know uh, that they're trapped in this. But so Jesus, the way that he deals with this is just say, well then since you won't answer that, then I'm not going to answer your question about my authority. If they had answered truthfully, that John was a prophet of God, they would get the answer about Jesus' authority. Because Jesus' authority came from God. He was the Messiah, the promised one sent by God. And so if they would have just recognized and admitted John's work was from God, they would have been answering their own question. Jesus' authority comes from God, but they couldn't admit that. Jesus was confronting and, and confronting them over their rejection of authority. He's putting them in the position of correcting their own thinking, but they won't do it. They still don't accept Jesus' authority. They chose to reject the truth of God for themselves. Now, authority is something that we all struggle with. Uh, we want control in our lives. We do want control. And we certainly don't like to submit to the authority of someone else, especially if that someone is going to step into our lives and correct us and confront us about things that are wrong. We don't want to follow their authority. And so I think that it's important that we ask, as we see the Savior that steps in and corrects uh, individuals for their rejection of authority and his, his authority in their lives, is just to ask the questions, what areas would Jesus have to confront in my life? What areas of authority that I haven't given up control of yet in my life would Jesus have to step in and say, this is not right what do we still fight to control in our lives? It could be a certain sin that we don't want to let go of. Uh, it could be how we spend our money. 
We don't want uh, a Savior that's going to say, well, this is what you should do with that instead of just satisfying something for yourselves or pleasing something for yourselves. It could be how we spend our time, but Jesus Christ has all authority. And as his people, we should submit to his authority and we should let the word of God shape us and teach us and train us and let the spirit of God work in us to shape us into the people that God wants us to be. Submitting to the authority of our Savior. Out of love, Jesus corrects and confronts these areas that need to be corrected and confronted. The third thing that we see is this. Jesus corrects and confronts those who reject God's plan of redemption. Jesus corrects and confronts those who reject God's plan of redemption. So he's continuing to address the religious leaders who have rejected his authority. And he warns them about what's to come through this parable uh, that he's going to use. So looking back at Luke 20, verse 9 through 19. Now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the, the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw out the vineyard, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, That must never happen. But he looked at them and said, Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but to whomever it falls, it will shatter them. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour, because they knew he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So Jesus is confronting those who have rejected God's plan of redemption. God has one plan of redemption, one plan of salvation for the people. And yet the the religious leaders have rejected that. Using an agricultural image of the day, he talks about a landowner who had some tenant farmers. Tenant farmers is very similar. It's not the exact same, but very similar to sharecropping. So you may be more familiar about hearing about sharecropping. Where there's an owner of the land, and then people work the land, and then the owner of the land gets a pay from the crops of the harvest. Tenant farming is similar to that. And so he says there's an owner of some land that has a vineyard. And he leases that vineyard out to some tenant farmers. And when it comes time for harvest, he sends a servant to receive the portion of pay that he deserves. 
the portion of pay that is owed to him. Now, it's important to remember the parables that were used were giving images that they would be familiar with that can then be used to teach a spiritual reality, a spiritual truth to them. So it's not that every single component would tie into a reality, uh, but they are teaching a principle. And so Jesus tells this story, and he says he sends some servants, and the first servant that goes is beaten and mistreated and sent away with nothing. He sends another one, same thing happens. Sends another one, same thing happens. The servants in this, well, at first, let's say the man, of course, represents God. The tenant farmers represent the religious leaders, the leaders of the nation of Israel. And the servants represent the prophets that God had been sending his people for centuries. He had been sending prophets to warn his people, to turn his people back to him, to let them know what was expected of them, and yet the prophets were oftentimes mistreated by the people of Israel. They were abused regularly because the people didn't want to hear the stuff that needed to be corrected about their lives. The people didn't want to worship God the way that God had intended them to. And so the prophets regularly were mistreated. Some of them were killed. Most of them were treated horribly by the people of Israel. And so God has sent the people of Israel all of these warnings, all of these prophets, and yet they regularly mistreated him, mistreated them. And then in the story, it says the landowner finally says, what else can I do? Time and time again, uh, a servant has gone to them and they continue to do this. Surely, if I send my son, surely if my son goes, they're going to respect the son. And of course, we know that the son represents Jesus. God the Father has sent Jesus the son as the plan of redemption But the people will continue to reject him. The people will continue to reject God. The story uses the language, I'll send my beloved son. Of course, that's the language that we heard the father use of Jesus earlier in the Gospel of Luke. At the baptism of Jesus, the father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved son. And so God has sent his son, and this parable now turns prophetic. Because it's going to detail what's about to happen to Jesus Christ. The tenant farmers representing the religious leaders of the nation of Israel are going to reject the son, and they are about to put him to death. And so Jesus, prophetically speaking, says this is about to take place. But with that, it's also a warning, right? There's a warning. You you don't have to continue the rejection. You can turn to God. You can receive the redemption that God has planned for you. You can receive the salvation. So Jesus then explains, so what do you think is going to happen when the son is killed? What do you think is going to take place? 
surely the father, or surely the man is going to, to come and destroy those who have killed the son. And he's going to give the land over to someone else. And the people are outraged at that. They say, that can't ever happen. No way would that be what happens. And Jesus references one of the Messianic Psalms. He turns to the Psalms that would have been familiar to them. Psalm 118. And says, well, what does this verse mean? What does this passage mean? And so looking back at that, Luke 20, verse 17, then what is the meaning of this Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Quoting Psalm 118, the Messianic Psalm. They knew the psalm. They were singing the song just a few days ago when Jesus entered Jerusalem. This is the same psalm that has the line, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were singing that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. Hosanna, Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now Jesus turns to that same psalm just a few days later and points out the verse of that psalm that talks about the stone that's been rejected, which is Him, Jesus Christ. The stone that's been rejected is going to become the cornerstone. And for those who that stone falls on, for those who are judged because they've rejected that stone... There is going to be judgment that comes against them. There is going to be destruction that comes against them. That's why the gospel is good news. Because we don't have to face that judgment. If we would stop rejecting God's plan of redemption, if we would receive the salvation that's available in the Son, then we don't have to face the The judgment that's to come. Jesus died for our sins. It's going to happen in just a couple of days from this passage. He's going to die on a cross so that you can be forgiven and so that I can be forgiven if we would just receive Him and believe in Him. And so the end of that parable is pointing to the judgment for those who don't receive Him who continue to reject Jesus and continue to reject God's plan of redemption. By rejecting Jesus, the people are rejecting the only way that they can be saved. And so Jesus' prophetic warning is an opportunity to change, is an opportunity to repent of that and receive forgiveness. Are you here today and you haven't settled in your mind and heart what it is that you uh, know and believe about Jesus Christ? The text here, this portion of the text that we're looking at today is a warning that destruction is coming to those who continue to reject Jesus Christ. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you would just believe in Him, Scripture says you will be saved. Don't reject Jesus any longer. He is God's plan. He is God's only plan of redemption. He's God's only plan of salvation for you. 
Our text has shown us that Jesus corrects and confronts us when it's necessary. Now, that seems harsh at times. We don't like to be corrected. We don't like when people confront things in us. Uh, We would prefer happy Jesus. We would prefer Jesus smiling. We prefer hippie Jesus that's just smiling and throwing peace signs, right? That we don't like the idea of a Savior that's going to confront us. But it's important to remember He does it out of love. He corrects us and confronts us because He loves us. God sent Jesus because He loves us. And so He came to warn us out of love. And so if you have not received Him, today is the day of salvation. You can receive Him today. You can believe in Him today. And Scripture says you will be saved. You will be adopted into the family of God, forgiven of your sins. And spend eternity with Him. And so if you want to know more about that, if you want to know more about the Gospel, if you want to know more about the Savior that's been provided, please see me after the service or see one of our elders or ministry leaders. We'd love to talk to you about that. Church, for us, we are reminded that still sometimes Jesus has to correct us and confront us. He does that with the Spirit of God working in us, convicting us. He does that through the the proclamation of the Word and the study of God's Word. Jesus is correcting us and confronting us and, and teaching us what it is that God desires from us. He does it out of love. He does it out of His love for us and He does it out of the love for the Father. As the divine Son of God, Jesus has the authority to do these things. He has the authority to correct us. He has the authority to confront us. But He doesn't do it just to get His way. He doesn't do it to force us into submission. He does it because He loves us. He does it for God's glory and our good. And so let's keep being shaped by the Word. Let's keep being led by the Spirit, receiving the loving correction that our Savior provides when He offers it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are good and faithful. And we confess there are times that we are faithless, there are times that we are rebellious, and yet Your your faithfulness to us continues on and on. Make us into the people that you want us to be, God. Use us for your glory. God, if there's any here who have not trusted in Christ yet today, stir in their hearts, open their eyes to see their need for a Savior. Cause them to believe. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.